Hi, I'm Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation. And today with me at the Justice Innovation in Times of Change conference here at the Quinnipiac School of Law in North Haven, Connecticut, are two of the panelists who participated in a discussion about risk needs assessment tools. They are Professor Ruben Miller, who is an assistant professor of social work at the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan, and his research assistant at the School of Social Work, Hazelette Crosby Robinson. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time after your panel to sit down and talk with me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I wanted to just start off talking about the risk assessment tools and some of the criticisms that have been leveled against them because, as we heard on the panel from uh, Sarah Fritchie, a colleague of mine at the Center for Court Innovation, their use has exploded and they've been embraced as a decision-making tool in the criminal justice setting. Um, But you raised some potential concerns about them and some of their limitations, and I wondered if you could share, you know, what what some of those limitations are as you see them. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, So uh, Hazelette is kind of my research associate and collaborator, you know, so anyway, even though she's super modest. So I'd like to first preface this by saying uh, some scholars have suggested that we've really entered an actuarial age. So it's not just risk assessment uh, in criminal justice, but a whole cost benefits calculus, a whole risk calculus that's based on actuarial models that try to predict future harm. So they try to predict, much like an insurance uh, company would try to predict the future risk of a car accident in a criminal justice setting, uh, these risk needs assessments are, are trying to, one, gauge the needs of incarcerated individuals or people who have been convicted of a crime uh, to try to figure out where they they could shore up deficits in their skill sets or in their general stability. So, for example, they might examine things like housing stability or whether or not one was employed uh, or what kinds of service needs they might have. So, for example, if one has a history of substance use and abuse, that would indicate that they need treatment or some sort of intervention based around these things. And at the same time, they're trying to gauge the risk of reoffense, so the risk that they will commit a crime. So there are a number of criticisms. The literature that engages this is fairly long. I tend to think about some of the, the, the movers and shakers in this field, uh, Kelly Hannah Moffitt, uh, Bernard Harcourt, uh, Sonia Starr, uh, Faye Taxman. Faye Taxman's work is actually helping us to think about uh, important ways uh, that we can implement risk assessment that reduce some of the biases that are sort of baked into it. But just to talk about some of the critiques that come from this literature and, of course, from my own. Uh, On the one hand, there are static factors like where one lives, so geography, their prior criminal history. These are things that, that they can't avoid. And the privileging of recidivism as an indicator of success, these are all problematic for the following reasons. Uh, So geography is often a proxy for race. We know that we live in a country that has a pattern of residential racial segregation. And and, and we know that policing and criminal justice resources of all kinds are overwhelmingly distributed in areas where poor people of color tend to live. The problem is people are now being arrested from, returned to, and even given programs designed to rehabilitate them all within low-income communities. 
very bounded geographic districts. And so what you get is you get the overwhelming concentration of criminal justice resources and you get a signaling of what that all means. So, so if the substance abuse treatment house is located in a neighborhood, that tells me that the substance abuse is there, right? And so that signals narcotics forces to the community. It, it says something about the community. Halfway houses are also overwhelmingly there. It's, and so one must think about what the concentration of these things do. So, okay, now, as it relates to risk, being in a neighborhood like this triggers a higher risk score. <laughs> it is indeed one of the measures of risk. Uh, and, and so in that way, it's a proxy for race. Sorry, right. I, I know so, I'm talking quite a bit. but No, so and just, no, to, just to kind of summarize, though, or to recap what you've said so far, yes. the way uh, risk assessment tools work, they place a high value on the location someone's from. They place a high value on their history That's with arrest. Right. That's absolutely and right. so if there's a preponderance of enforcement there. So people are more likely right. to have an arrest record. That's or right. That's, the studies on stop and frisk make this abundantly clear. That even when people aren't doing anything wrong, they're being overwhelmingly stopped if they're black or Latino, right? And so, and so we know that criminal justice contact increases the likelihood that one will be arrested. And so anyway, this, this, this is a big problem of using prior arrest records, for example, and even prior conviction records. So now you've got a bunch of arrests. By the time you get to the prosecuting attorney, they're gonna say, look, you've been arrested 14 times. Well, I've been arrested 14 times, but never charged. No, but you have a history of arrest. And so I'm going to now charge you because I see a pattern, right? And this, this is how statistical discrimination might work, right? Or, or does, in fact, work in practice. So now, now the prosecuting attorney sees a pattern, sends it before the judge, who looks at this pattern and interprets it to make a decision about uh, the length of the sentence uh, when the conviction is read as is a jury if it ever goes to trial. You know, 97% of cases never go to trial, but when it goes to trial, juries are presented with the same evidence of patterns, which have more to do with where the police are concentrated, right, than what people are actually doing. So what do you say to the notion that these instruments are validated, that they they predict? I mean, this information, whether it whether there's a potential bias incorporated into them, they still can predict six months to a year out whether someone is going to recommit a crime. Yes, yes. With, with, with great reliability, but the, it's a population that's being normed against itself. And so I overwhelmingly concentrate criminal justice resources in a particular neighborhood, which leads to more arrests, which leads to more convictions, which leads to more imprisonment. Then I look at those who were imprisoned, and I, and I use that to validate my measures. So, so, so the problem is, is this sort of, is this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, this feedback loop. This, this, this is one problem. Another problem is that, uh, and Kelly Hannah Moffat points this out brilliantly. Correlation and causation, are very different things. And it, it's, it's like it's like the standard uh, social science response that any bench chair social science scientist gives when they look at two re relationships and, and people use that as, as some sort of cause. But likelihood that a particular groups of people are more likely to commit a crime doesn't mean that having committed a crime in the past means you will actually commit a crime. And so what we're doing is is we're treating a relationship as if it's a cause, and, 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 and as if it's a fact. And so, and so I will sentence you now based on my assumption of your future danger to commit a crime based on a set of assumptions <laughs> that I use to justify the overwhelming uh, concentration of police to begin with. Um, and, and police aren't the culprits here, right? It's, it's a rationality. It's, it's a way to approach problems that, that I think must be critically investigated. And you also pointed out in your presentation that perhaps 
the cultural context, the environment, and the changing policy culture, where, for instance, uh, marijuana arrests, which were so vigorously pursued several years ago, are now considered you know, a low priority or they're not even being done anymore. And yet people have a record of those arrests. And if, and if history of arrest is a factor, I mean, someone in the audience also questioned this, should we drop that as a, those particular kind of arrests as a factor? Because we don't care about them anymore. Do they indicate further likelihood of going against the law? Or are they, were they just something someone did because they like marijuana? And that's, that's, that's it. That's right. That's right. And this is, this is a part of the rigidity of, of risk assessment. This is the rigidity of risk categories. And so to place one in a category, you are a, an offender. And in Michigan, uh, where where I've done a lot of research and where I've worked, habitual offenses, and this is it's not just like, like this in Michigan, but it's like this in many many states, uh, most states I would I would argue. Being a habitual offender means more time, greater risk, more punishment, so up to life. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, what does it mean to habituate? What am I looking at? Well, if I'm not being careful about the criminal codes, if I'm not carefully examining what I considered a crime at a given moment in time and adjusting my instrument for that, which must happen probably annually, if I'm not adjusting my instrument for that, if not quarterly, right, if I'm not adjusting that for different understandings of what is right and wrong, then, then what I'll end up doing is habituating someone giving them longer sentences, giving them harsher treatment, deeper levels of punishment, or indicating that they need deeper levels of intervention. Well, so tell me what recommendations you'd make, because you also made a point in the panel that there are some good things about risk assessment. Yes. They do take away discretion from judges or people who, whose own bias might lead them to make the wrong decisions. Absolutely. So the, the benefit of risk assessment is to use it to avoid the criminal record to begin with. Right? <laughs> like this, this is one benefit. So if you, if you have low risk, low leverage, as, as, as our colleague pointed out earlier today, um, then, 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 then you are not indicated for intervention of any kind. And it's better to just release these folks without intervention of any kind. Right, and that's what the research supports. The research supports it, absolutely. So, so what risk assessment allows the, the, the careful prosecutor, judge, defender, public defender, et cetera, to do is to remove some of the discretion because much of, and you mentioned this, much of the, much of the decisions that are being made are being made based on a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I am reading something in the in the in the the defendant. Uh, they don't have remorse, or they haven't shown accountability uh, for their actions, or they have, uh, as one of the the panelists raised, belligerent interactions. Let's say with their parents, or the prosecuting attorney, or the defendant. And, the, and my assessment is happening, uh, divorced from uh, what it means to actually be in court in that moment in time. Mm -hmm. How might a child? 17 years old, respond to facing 20 years in prison. How should they respond? Should they be depressed, sad, angry, uh, avoidant? Uh, how, how, what, what are our expectations in this moment? And so, and so what risk assessment allows us to do is say, okay, wait a minute, let me take a step back. Let me look at what actually happened. Let me get away from my intuition. Let me think about uh, a more objective, more objective um, way to assess how this defendant should be treated. An interesting note, so here it is. We can use smart risk assessments to think carefully and critically about how we treat offenders, what kind, what level of intervention uh, that, that, that we lay out, whether that intervention be prison or jail time or a diversion mm -hmm. program or a treatment group. There's no perfect way to do this, which is why constant re-evaluation is necessary. You can't mm -hmm. settle, this is the instrument for me. 
can't settle. It's not the instrument for you continuous and your, and, improvement. And, continuous improvement. And maybe testing, I, if I understood what Sarah Fritchie said, my colleague, the re researcher at the Center for Corner Innovation, that you also can test these instruments within certain populations and see, are they producing more negative outcomes for an African-American population? And ask these questions that you're asking to weed out the bias that might be built Absolutely. into them. The questions that we're raising, mm -hmm. in some ways, a set of philosophical questions, but they're questions about the application, um, the use of, the embrace of instruments to determine whether or not someone is a future danger. Perhaps this is just the wrong approach altogether. Not the, not the risk assessment, not that one doesn't need to think about ways that they can help predict uh, behaviors of individuals. I think, I think that's useful in some ways, but, but it certainly needs to be challenged. It needs to be questioned. What am I predicting? Who am I predicting this for? What are the possibilities for this person once these predictions are made? Uh, these are questions that need to be addressed. So, Ms. Crosby Robinson, uh, let me ask you, when, as we talk about the, uh, these kinds of assessments, you bring to bear your own set of experiences with the correctional system as a researcher and you know your own past history which you referred to on the panel as someone who had been formerly incarcerated and I wonder you know what insights that has allowed you to bring to bear to this notion presumably a long time ago they didn't have these risk assessments I don't know you know when when you were initially had your first contact with the correctional system and the justice system and now they do and you've had a lot of contact and opportunity to interview and spend time with uh, people who are incarcerated. And I wonder wh where you come down on, on this issue. Well, first of all, I, I think it's a good idea to have a risk assessment, as Ruben has said earlier, because it removes some of discretion from judges, you know, and uh, prosecutors to make these uh, decisions based on their own personal bias or how they're feeling at the time. But what it does not account for are all of the little various innuendos that a person is going through when they come. Family reunification can create a stressor. Or somebody coming out and they have to be paroled to a family address, a suitable relative placement. So they're coming to this family address, but the family address that the parole officer has decided that the person can parole to is not really the best environment. And sometimes the issues that they had that led to their incarceration stemmed from the family issues that they were having at the time. Or it's not in the right environment. Or they don't have really enough support from their family. And things happen because lives are fluid and things change, you know. So, uh, for instance, we interviewed a person who was 17 years old and she was pregnant. She had a mental illness. She had been in the mental health system uh, since she was eight years old. She lived with her grandmother. We interviewed people three times as soon as they were discharged and then 30 days after they'd been out, then 60 days, then 90 days. And so, Following her for, by the time we got to her third interview, her grandmother dies. She's living in her grandmother's house. This is the only stable person she's known in her life. Her grandmother has raised her since nine years old. She just had a baby. The baby isn't a year old yet. She, now she's 18 years old. She has a mental illness and she's relying on that system to, you know, to become her support now where her grandmother was everything. Well, these are things that a risk assessment just would not pick up because you never know what's going to happen. So now what happens to this individual? You know, we're at the end of the, of the time that we follow this person for our study. But you know the question is in our mind. You're like, what happens? And another thing that I find frustrating 
it's no matter what your risk assessment is and if you get it right or not, then when a person gets out into the community, whatever the risk uh, assessment decided that they need as a support or an intervention, there's no community resource for that. The theme I'm hearing from both of you is that these risk needs assessment tools cannot be judged or effectively used apart from the environment, whether it's the environment that created the measurements of risk or the needs. Because if you can identify needs and say, great, but if you don't have the resources in the community, it's meaningless information. Absolutely. So Faye Taxman has a great, great paper. Uh, she finds that of on the need side of things, substance abuse treatment is indicated in about 90% of the folks who are justice involved. But the, the, the capacity to provide the treatment, either in prison or out, uh, something like 25% of folks in prison were, were able to actively engage in regular substance abuse treatment that needed it. Uh, and, and so what this does is it creates another deficiency that one might judge or regard as a part of the risk of this individual recidivate. Did you complete programming? What was programming mm -hmm. available, yes. right? Either in prison or out. Well, this has been a very vigorous and interesting conversation, and I really appreciate uh, you're both taking the time to speak with me about your work. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I've been speaking with uh, Professor Ruben Miller, Assistant Professor of Social Work at the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan, and his uh, research assistant and collaborator, Hazlett Crosby Robinson. And we're all here today in New Haven at a Quinnipiac University School of Law for the conference uh, Justice Innovation in Times of Change, which is sponsored by the Center for Court Innovation and the Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Assistance and hosted by Quinnipiac University. You can find out more about uh, risk needs assessment and uh, criminal justice reform in general at our website, www.courtinnovation.org. I'm Rob Wolf. Thanks for listening.